Our text this morning comes from the fourth division of the book that we call the Acts of the Apostles. And it's in verses 19 and 20, and it's a text that has a very interesting background. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to prayer meeting one afternoon. And as they come to the gate of the temple, they encounter a pest. It's a beggar. A man whose presence has become as familiar to the churchgoers as the temple itself. And this beggar there that's at the beautiful gate of the temple, he did what beggars do. He asked for help. And without any irritation and without any hesitation, Peter and John reached and they started searching their pockets. And guess what? They were empty. And so Peter, speaking for the two of them, said, Silver and gold have I none. Well, now, most times that's going to be the end of the conversation. I mean, Peter has just said, Look, man, I'm sorry. I'm tapped out. I'm broke. I don't have any money today. But these two men, they didn't think the fact they couldn't give money excused them. They didn't think the fact that they couldn't give any money set them free. They felt felt that they should still make some contribution toward this man's welfare. So, Peter said, I will give you what I can. Now, think about that for just a minute. This man is a beggar. Now, what does he want? He wants money. And if Peter and John are broke and they can't give him any money, they can't give him any silver or gold, what did they have? Well, for one thing, Peter and John had a very keen interest in that beggar at the temple gate that day. They had a personal interest in that man. You know why? Because that is what Jesus had taught them to do. They looked at this man that people looked upon as a parasite, and they saw in this man something of value. And I would suspect that as Peter and John looked at that man that day, that no one had ever looked upon him that way before. And the deep personal interest that these two men of God had in this man It awakened some dead hopes inside that man's heart that day. It stirred a faith, an expectancy that this beggar would have thought was impossible. Peter said, silver and gold have I none. But rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Because of this man's encounter with Peter and John at the temple gate that day, he was cured in body. Better still, he was cured in heart. He went into the temple, and he went in the temple walking. Dr. Luke says that he entered the temple, he was walking and leaping and excited, and he was happy and praising God. Well, that afternoon at the prayer meeting, there was a new face there. 
And after the services, the folks all gathered around this man that just a few hours earlier had been a lame beggar at the temple gate. And he's clinging to Peter and to John because they are the men who had helped him and healed him. Well, that gave Peter something. That gave Peter the opportunity he had been waiting on. Because this man's been leaping and shouting and praising God and he's clinging to Peter and John because they're the men that have healed him and helped him and made him whole. And you know what Peter decided? It's time to preach. I mean, there's an audience there. They're all staring at him. And that's what preachers do. So Peter started preaching. He told that crowd of people that day, he said it was the same Jesus that their authorities had crucified, that God had raised from the dead. And he said it was the power of Jesus that made that beggar whole that day. Well, guess what? That kind of dangerous talk could not be tolerated. So instead of inviting Peter and John home for supper, they locked them up for the night. And the next morning comes and Peter and John are put on trial. And they're facing a court that's dominated by the men who had been the movers in the legal murder of Jesus. Having been somewhat unfriendly toward Jesus, you might say, This court was naturally not friendly toward these apostles that morning either. And yet, after they considered the question, they brought in a verdict that was considered to be somewhat mild. Peter and John were not asked to renounce their faith altogether. They were not required to renounce their faith. They weren't told they had to go back to the temple and say they had made a misrepresentation or issue some kind of retraction or say they were mistaken. All that court did was they demanded that they not preach anymore and they not teach anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. And to the court that passed that sentence, well, that's a very mild sentence. But now I can imagine the response of those simple country preachers that day. And I have an idea the response that those two simple country preachers made that day amazed those folks beyond words. Because they had already realized that Peter and John were unlearned and ignorant men. But they realized that even though they were unlearned and ignorant men, they had been with Jesus. But Peter and John didn't bow down and thank the court for leniency. They didn't say, oh yes, we won't do that anymore. Thank you for having mercy on us. Here's what it says in, 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 in Acts chapter 4 and verses 19 and 20. Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than to God, you judge. 
For we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. You judge whether we need to listen to you or listen to God, but I'm going to tell you something, they said. We can't keep silent. We've got to speak about, preach about, and tell about the things that we've seen and heard. There are a couple of very impressive facts about this. It's impressive the way these men saw this situation through to its conclusion. These fellows had showed up very poorly when Jesus was arrested. You remember the last part of the communion focus Mike read this morning? All the disciples forsook Him and fled. So when Jesus had been arrested that night, these folks had showed up very poorly. But now, standing in front of the council that day, they did not give way to a cowardly compromise. But they faced that court with a quiet defiance. They said, what you ask for is impossible. You're asking for silence. And for us, that is not only impossible, that is unthinkable. You see, they had not received their authority to speak from God, from men. Their authority to speak had come from God. It didn't come from men. And since their authority to speak came from God, they could not help but speak the things that they'd seen and heard. They looked that court right in the eye. And they said, in spite of anything you say, and in spite of anything you do, we're going to keep preaching. And the court adjourned that day, knowing that the apostles had won, and not the judges. I'm impressed with the way that these men saw a hard situation through. I'm also impressed with the ease with which they saw it through. If I'd been in their shoes, I'm afraid I might have spent a sleepless night before the trial. Because the men they were being tried in front of were the men that had crucified the men that had murdered Jesus Christ. They were powerful men. They were unscrupulous men. They were without principle. They were crooked. They were ruthless. And they were immoral. If they were alive today, you'd call them politicians. I think I would have had a hard time facing the prospect of a trial in front of those people with a calm and quiet mind. I'm afraid that I would have appeared in court the next morning with a face that was haggard and drawn by anxiety and and fear. But that wasn't what Peter and John did. They came into court with a countenance that spoke of Jesus. The court took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. 
And Peter and John saw this ordeal through with a beautiful ease. Now, I want you to use your sanctified imagination. And imagine the scene as Peter and John are released. They return to their friends. They go back to their friends and they, they tell them everything that had been said to them. And their friends looked at them and they didn't see any marks of tense or tragic strain in their faces. They looked at them and they saw a settled joy. They saw a quiet peace. And I can hear Peter and John as they told their friends, they said, well, we told them that we could not help but speak the things we'd seen. And I can hear their friend. how did you do that? How did you manage to stay calm and say that in front of the Sanhedrin? Peter and John would have looked at them and said, well, we couldn't have done otherwise. At this point in their lives, it's as natural for Peter and John to be courageous as just a few days earlier it had been for them to be cowardly. And folks, this story has an enduring interest for us. At one time or another, every one of us has our hours of testing. We have our difficult days. And we would like to meet them in the same victorious way that Peter and John met this. In one way or another, we stand at the forks of the road every day. And often being tempted to compromise, we need to have the courage and the strength of character to take the right path. For Peter and John that day, compromise would have been such an easy solution. They could have said to the court, you don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And they could have said, yes, sir, we surely won't. And they could have just surrendered. We have to meet the ordeals in our life with the same valor and the same daring that Peter and John faced the council that day. They saw it through. And they saw the situation through with honor. And they did a big thing with beautiful naturalness. There was no bluster. There was no clenching of the fist. Well, I'll tell you what. There was no squaring of the jaw. Calmly. As if courage and loyalty had become second nature to them. They said, we can't help but speak about the things we've seen and heard. You see, in Jesus Christ, Peter and John found a strength that they did not know that they possessed. Peter and John had learned to be good without really trying. Write this down. It's on the final exam. 
to be good without too much sweat is the only way to make goodness attractive. I've known some very deeply religious folks who were also horrible religious examples. The elder son that Jesus speaks of in Luke 15 is a very religious man. He's clean. He's honorable. He's a hard worker. But there's no beauty in his religion. According to his own testimony, his religion was nothing more than dire slavery. Philip's translation of Luke 15 and verse 29 has the young man saying, Look how many years I've slaved for you. Or the Pharisee of Luke 18. The one who stands and he said, Oh God, I thank Thee that I'm not as other men are, unjust, extortioners, and so forth and so on. I pay tithes and I fast. And he tells God how wonderful he is. That Pharisee of Luke 18 was a very deeply religious man, but his religion was a religion that repels more than it charms. Perhaps the poet summed it up best. I saw a wayworn traveler in tattered garments clad, and struggling up the mountain, it seemed that he was sad. The poor fellow, he was on his way to heaven, but his best garment was rags. And there's no laughter, no joy, no smile, no happiness in his journey. Folks, I'm afraid that that's the example we sometimes make, often make, on the unchurched. They look at us, they look at our lives, and they're willing to concede that we're on our way to heaven. And they look at us and they look at our lives, they concede that we're on our way to heaven, and they're willing to grant that we're going to be very happy when we get to heaven. But by our actions and by the life we live, they're convinced that we're having the most horrible time we could have on the trip. We commend Christianity to people about like we're having a root canal instead of praising God and finding the joy of the Lord. How can we do what Peter and John did? How can we learn to be thoroughly religious thoroughly Christian without the strain and the gloominess. We've got to practice living up to our very best day by day. That's not all of it, but it's part of it. It's the idea of putting our Christianity into practice on a daily basis. We read about Jesus As his custom was, he entered the synagogue. You know what that tells me? Jesus was addicted to church attendance. A good life is largely made up of good habits. We practice good habits till they become second nature to us. Think about the statesman Daniel over in the Old Testament. 
how he got in the way of the cheap politicians in Babylon. They issued the order not, not to pray to anyone other than Darius, but Daniel opened his windows and prayed toward Jerusalem as he did aforetime, as he'd always done. Good habits are important. But something that's far more important than good habits is companionship with Jesus. That was the supreme secret behind the courage of Peter and John. It was something that was so obvious that that unfriendly court even saw it. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. They said, oh, they have been with Jesus. Years earlier, they'd met Jesus Christ. And they'd been invited into His fellowship. And as they followed Him and spent time with Him, they came to know Him and they came to love Him. And knowing Him and loving Him, they became more and more like Him. They came to possess His disposition. They possessed His way of looking at things. And they lived with Jesus until courage and unselfish living became as natural to them as the opposite had been before they met Him. Living with Jesus. They became like Jesus. And it all starts when we surrender our lives to Jesus. When we choose to, in simple trusting faith, repent of everything that's sin in our lives, confess His name, and be cleansed in the waters of baptism and have our sins washed away. And it continues as day by day we seek the companionship of Jesus Christ. You see, as Peter and John lived like Jesus, they became like Jesus. And living like Jesus becomes second nature to us when Jesus is the Lord and Master of our lives. Here it comes. If Jesus is not Lord of all of your life, He's not Lord at all in your life. It's His invitation as we stand.